Um, would you pray with me? You are God and you are good. We turn our attention now to your word. And as we do so, we ask that you would walk with us because, God, we need you. And so be with us as we now turn our focus and attention to your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Often in life as Christians, we focus on the cross. And we're thankful for the cross. We're thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus. We're mindful of the wrath of the Father being poured out on Jesus on the cross. We're thankful for his death. But frequently we forget the importance of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes it incredibly clear. If there is no resurrection, the cross is useless. The cross is empty of any meaning whatsoever if there is no resurrection. Now, equally important is the cross and resurrection. They go hand in hand. But if you take away the cross, there is no resurrection. If you take away the resurrection, there is no meaning in the cross. None whatsoever. It just doesn't exist. That's why in Philippians 3, Paul can say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Of his resurrection. And yet, I'll suggest that the resurrection is hard for many to believe. The resurrection is hard for many to believe. I mean, it was in Jesus' day. It was hard in Jesus' day for people to believe in resurrection. People knew that people had been raised to life again. In fact, they'd seen Jesus do it with a young girl, with Lazarus later on. But they didn't believe anyone could be resurrected by their own power. Resurrected by the, No one stood outside of Jesus' tomb to resurrect him. Jesus being part of a triune being, God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. God the Father raised God the Son to life again. The resurrection comes from God to God, from God the Father to God the Son. And nothing like this had ever been experienced in all of history. In fact, the Jewish people wouldn't, couldn't believe at times, although obviously a group did, the disciples and others, in the resurrection because Jesus hung on a tree. And cursed is anyone, the Old Testament says, that hangs on a tree. Paul unpacks that argument in Galatians. And so as people were going around explaining the resurrection, as the apostles are going around explaining the resurrection of Christ, people had a hard time believing it. People had a hard time believing this could be real, that this could be true. Maybe there's times in your Christian walk, or maybe today you're here and you're not even a believer yet, but maybe there's times in your Christian walk where believing in the resurrection has been really hard. Believing that Jesus rose to life again has been incredibly challenging. Or maybe if you talk to the average Hamiltonian, right? if you're talking to people around the GTA, and you're having a conversation with them, you realize, wow, explaining the resurrection is really tough. And them coming to a place to believe in it is even tougher. And all of a sudden you realize that we're kind of in the same place as the people in the first century. These Jewish apostles that are going around proclaiming to people the good news of the resurrection. And yet, as Paul begins his first missionary journey, as he and Barnabas launch out into what God wants them to do, he focuses on the resurrection. If you have your Bible, Acts 13, the verses will be on the screen, but Acts 13, what hope does the resurrection offer you? What hope is there in the resurrection? Verse 13 from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in uh, Pamphylia, where John 
had left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Poseidon Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them word saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. A couple of things here. We'll dive into this in Acts 15. I can't remember if I'm preaching that or someone else is as we go through this series. But I'll, I'll remind them of that. John Mark leaves at this point. John Mark's gone. Luke just makes it a comment here. In Acts 15, we see there's actually a division as he goes. There's later on reconciliation because Paul comments about John Mark later on in the gospel. And Mark, of course, writes the gospel of Mark on behalf of Peter. But here, John leaves. We don't know why. Nothing is said as to why John departs. We just know John's gone, or John Mark. Mark's gone. And then, as they sail on, they go on the Sabbath to a synagogue. That was Paul's strategy, right? Paul wanted to contextualize the gospel. So he always started in synagogues. If there was a synagogue in a town where Jewish people were gathering, he would start there. I want you to know what they did. They sat down. The law and the prophets are read. And then someone, the synagogue leader, motions to Paul and asks if he has something to say. So that to me would indicate that they saw Paul there as a rabbi. They saw Paul there as a Pharisee. Paul was likely dressed in his Pharisaical or rabbi attire. That's why they recognize him as such. They see him as a visiting, as a guest rabbi. This was part of Paul's strategy. He is a rabbi. He is a Pharisee. He's recognized as such. It's what God saved him from. But him now believing, not to throw the Old Testament out, but the very opposite, that Christ is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, him now believing that, he sees a value in the Old Testament unlike never before, and so he shows up, likely in his rabbinic garb, which is why they point out to him and say, do you have anything to say? Isn't that, isn't that a great moment? It, it's like a, a couple of years ago, we received an award um, from Hamilton Health Science Corporation, the, the, the teaching faculty, um, anyone who has a teaching faculty position uh, with McMaster, so that's a, 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 a physician in our city who also has teaching faculty positions, about 600 of them in our city, vote every year on a charity. And back in 2019, we were voted as a charity of the year. It surprised us. I remember getting the email in late December. And uh, I thought it was a joke. I actually thought it was one of my friends pranking us. And so I called the number, and it was Hamilton Health Science Corporation, and they answered. And, and they said, uh, yeah, we would like to award then Houston Street Baptist Church as the charity of the year from the teaching faculty of, of uh, the, the Association of Faculty from McMaster University. I'm like, well, that's an honor. Marcio went with me. Um, and, so, and so I said, uh, and so what do we do? They said, there's a banquet we're having. We'd like to come, you come to the banquet. We'll present you with a, an award at the front. And it included cash. They gave the church a fair bit of cash. And, uh, and I said, okay. I said, can I say anything when I'm at the front? Like, can I, can I just take a minute and thank them for the gift? And they said, we've actually heard you're a decent order. You can take 10 minutes and address the group. I said, I can do what? They said, you can take 10 minutes and address the group. I'm like, Lord, thank you. And so that night I, I got up and I, I thanked the room for their work in medicine. I thanked them for their efforts in keeping our city healthy. 
And then I talked about how all knowledge we have is knowledge that God has given us. That all knowledge we have is knowledge that God has granted us. And that God has granted us the knowledge of who he is supremely in the person of Christ. And I just talked about that for a few minutes. And the intersect of faith and science and what that looks like. So here they see Paul as a rabbi, as a teacher, and they say, would you come up? And they don't know what they're about to get. Paul gets up, and this is what he says. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand, and he said, fellow Israelites, you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of the country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. This took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king. He gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing him, he made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So Paul, knowing that his audience is Jewish, addresses the Jewish people. Paul, knowing that these are his brothers, he calls them so, brother, fellow Israelites. And then he moves on in his dialogue, and he starts off with Moses. He, he doesn't enter or engage in a conversation about creation. He knows they all agree on creation. That's why Paul will engage that very differently in other parts of Acts. He'll talk about creation to Gentiles in a whole different way. But Paul knows that they all believe it's God who created. They just don't fully understand who God is. So he doesn't address creation. He simply talks about God's choosing of Israel. He talks about of God's rescue through Egypt. He talks about God's providence in granting them the promised land. And then he talks about judges briefly. In, in, like in terms of the promised land. God, God gave them judges. So God, he's talking about their rulers. The judges were the rulers. Then Saul was the ruler. Then King David was the ruler. And then he goes on. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground, for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in the tomb. Paul starts with the Exodus, the conquering of Canaan, the judges, Saul, David, and then he jumps right to Jesus. Because it's of David's line that it's said God will rule forever through David's line. And so he skips right to Jesus. And he says, he says from this man's descendants, verse 23, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus just as he promised. And what Paul wants to show in just a few verses is that this Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the one of whom 
God promised. He says it wasn't John. He says John even said that, John the Baptist. He came and said, I am not worthy to untie the sandals of the one coming after me. He says it is Jesus. Notice how he addresses them with respect in verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles. So in the synagogue, there's both that day, Jews, and those who are curious about the Jewish faith. In fact, when he talks about God-fearing Gentiles, in essence, they've converted over to the Jewish faith. He says, it's to us that this message of salvation has been sent. We're searching through the Old Testament, waiting for the Messiah to come. We're searching, waiting for God's provision. We're looking for the fulfillment of God's promise, and he has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the improbability of all of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in a person is so ridiculous that it could only be Jesus, only be him. He says, but we didn't recognize him. And yet, not recognize him, we fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. He's reminding them that the prophets, because the law was read every Sabbath, the prophets was read every Sabbath. And although he didn't deserve to die, he was executed. He mentions the curse by saying they took him down from the cross, laying him in a tomb. Everyone there would have known, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, but they put him in a tomb, and he's there. And in these moments, he's just trying to remind all of them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the promised one of whom all the fulfillment is found. But, verse 30, God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, they are his witnesses to our people. But God raised him to life again. God raised him from the dead, and there were witnesses. He says, he says I want you to know what's happened. This Jesus who died was raised to life again, and people saw it. This is real. This is reality. We're not making this up. This isn't something fictitious. God raised him to life again. People have seen it. There are witnesses. He says, you can go talk to them. You can go ask them. You can go see what they have to say. You can find these witnesses. These witnesses are still alive. And talk to them about what they've seen. That's why he mentions them. There's a whole group of people. If you don't believe me, Paul's saying, go and start to talk to the numbers of people. I mean, at one time, Scripture says he appeared to more than 500. He appeared to the 12 apostles, others. He says, go and ask them. They'll tell you he's raised to life again. On Easter Sunday, I talked about various proofs to the resurrection. I'm not going to get into that now. I want to get into some other things about the resurrection in the next few moments. But there are various proofs. I mean, the whole fact that God allowed women to be the first people to come to the tomb when a woman's testimony in that day was inadmissible in court speaks to the incredible incredible work of God in the gospels his high value of women his love for for truth because if the apostles were making this up you'd never make up that women came first it wouldn't make any sense and yet the women whose faith are much is much greater in that moment than the men they show up first the whole idea that the disciples would be unable to overcome the soldiers. The whole idea that if the soldiers and Romans had actually taken the body and hidden it to fake a resurrection, that on the day of Pentecost, when this is just beginning to, to, to unravel and thousands of people are now following 
the apostles as they're declaring who Jesus is, that all they would have had to do is show his body. It would have been recognizable, though, to King and say, here he is, here's his body. He's not dead. He's not alive, sorry. He is dead, but they couldn't do it because he was alive. The fact that human history is unexplainable without the resurrection. You take the resurrection out of human history and all of history of the last 2,000 years completely unravels to naught. You can't even make sense of it. So Paul here explains he's alive. Go talk to the other witnesses. Go see the people who've seen him. Hear from them what they saw. Go speak to some of the women. Go hear the valid testimony of those who heard him that he indeed is alive. It's real. The resurrection is real. It occurred. Verse 32. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, the, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it's written in the second psalm. This is Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I become your father. And then God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, Isaiah 55 is this one. I give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Or as stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. But when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. He says, I, I want you to know that anyone else who has died has seen decay, including King David. But these promises that God has granted through all of his word have come to fulfillment in Jesus. He is God the Son. He is the one of whom the prophet spoke. He is the one of whom they said will never see decay. And he never saw decay because three days after his death, the father raised him to life again. It is good news. It is good news that he is the Messiah. It is good news that he is the Christ. It is good news that he never saw decay. It is our hope. I mean, when people come to me, I, I sit in conversations with people all the time, and someone who would claim to be agnostic or atheistic in, in, their, in their, kind of their, their, their system of thought, when they say to me, you know, Dwayne, it's okay with me, for me, that I'm just going to die one day, and there's nothing after death. I'm like, is it really okay with you? I mean, everything that gives you meaning, beauty, wonder, love, everything that gives you meaning, I mean, the other night when Amy and I were together and all four of our kids were at dinner and we had a family devotional time and this doesn't happen as often anymore with Abby working and Ethan being out of it, but a few times a week it happens or a week ago uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, we went out as a family with Amy's mom and her sister and, and her sister's son and all four of our kids came and we went to different waterfalls and we hiked together and, I, I just, and we all went out to dinner together, all of us at dinner together. And I, and I just said to Amy, this just feels so good. Right, here's the family I love. I mean, I, lo I love many of you, but not as much as them. I hope you think that's fine. Right? Even I say to my girls, like, my girls say, do you love us as much as mom? I say, no. No, I said, I love you, but I'm in love with your mom. They're like, what does that mean? I said, just give it a few more years. You're 12. Hang on. It's coming. And, and, and bring them to dad first. Right? But, 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 but. But the things that make us who we are, that give life meaning, wonder, beauty, love, 
Are we really okay with them not continuing? Are we really okay with them non-existing? Are we really okay with the fact that we are just part of bacterial growth that, that one day ends and there's nothing beyond? I mean, when people say to me, I'm okay with that, I'm like, how could you be okay with that? The certainty of the resurrection, the certainty of Christ being raised to life again, of witnesses seeing him, of his body not seeing decay, allows that which gives us the greatest meaning to last for all of eternity. Is that not good news? That's why Paul can say that these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Because our faith is now sight. Our hope is realized, but love will remain forever. It will always be with no end with no end whatsoever. Verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care of what the prophets have said does not, take care of that, sorry, what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you, Habakkuk 1, 5. And so what do we do with our sin? I mean, how often do you not feel good about yourself? I mean, whenever you feel not good about yourself, it's usually due to your sin. You've lied about something. You've misled some people. You've cheated on your taxes. You're bitter and continue to be bitter. You've gossiped, whatever it would be. You're caught. And you just feel awful about your sin. What do you do with that? How do you get rid of your sin? Guilt that just weighs on us. We sung about it this morning. Guilt because we recognize not only we sinned against others, but we sinned against God. And what do we need? We need forgiveness. What's it feel like when someone forgives you? What's it feel like when you go to your spouse after sinning against them and you ask them for forgiveness and they forgive you? Years ago at weddings, I would almost always talk about the power of forgiveness in marriage. And I remember years ago, men after men coming to me between wedding and reception, or sometimes at the reception, saying, what you said this morning, it really spoke to me. I've, I've never asked my wife to forgive me. I'm like, what? I said, I, I can't comprehend how much I sin against Amy. Because you will sin more against the person you're closest to than anyone else. I said, I, I didn't think it was possible to ask for someone's forgiveness this much. And I sin against God insurmountably more than ever my wife. And when Amy's and my relationship aren't, isn't right, it's just awful, isn't it? To climb into that bed, to sit down at dinner, it's just awful. And yet when there's forgiveness, when there's restoration, when God's at work, the beauty of that marriage relationship is the most amazing experience ever. And the same is true with God. Through Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin. Is that not good news? 
Through Jesus, the one whom we've offended the most, the one who holds us to account for our sin, is able to wipe our slate clean. He's able to forgive. He's able to take away our guilt for how many sins. He says it right here, for every one of them. You are, anyone who believes is set free from every sin and you are justified. That is the legal, the legal uh, 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 terminology of you having right standing before the Father. And it's one that you couldn't obtain under the law of Moses. You could never achieve it through the law. But because Christ fulfilled the law, you can achieve it through him. Because he kept the law perfectly. So he says, don't be like those who say, wow, I can't believe this even if someone told me. Sinclair Ferguson says this, we are adopted into God's family through the resurrection of Christ from the dead in which he paid all our obligations to sin, the law and the devil, in whose family we once lived. Our old status lies in the tomb. Our new status is ours through his resurrection. Is that not good news? Our old status lies in the tomb with Jesus, and our new status, we've been raised with him, is in his resurrection. It's been paid in full. Paid in full. I remember last year, I took Jewel and Ivy to Toronto, and and there was a deal. They'd just gone to all-day service uh, last summer on the GO train. And I was like, hey, girls, do you want to take the GO train? And we'll go down and we'll go to the aquarium. And we did. And then we hopped on the subway. And we went to uh, uh, Pickle Barrel because I love the Pickle Barrel. And we traveled through Toronto. And we just had a great day. And the girls loved the train, loved the subway. It was so much fun. But they didn't have to pay to get on the train. Um, and I did, right? And so we're sitting on the train. And the girls are like, Dad, lots of people were just standing in line to get on the train. And you can get here any number of ways. How do they know you paid? I said, well, occasionally a gentleman or a woman, they come walking through the aisles and they ask for your tickets. Just like you saw on the Polar Express. They're like, oh, like the Polar Express. <laughs> saw their tickets, right? And if you have a ticket, you can stay on the train. They said, if you don't, do you have to go on top of the train like the Polar Express? I'm like, no, 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 nothing, nothing like that. They don't put you on the top of the train. But they do kick you off. Whoa. But I said, if someone came to us, you show them your ticket. It's your receipt that says you belong here. The accomplished work of Christ when you believe is your receipt. When you stand before God in judgment and he looks at you, he sees his son and his work says you belong here. Is that not good news? I remember walking out of a store one day with Amy. We paid for our merchandise and everything and we were walking out and all the woo, woo, woo. Security guards came running. I was pulling out the receipt, and the guy goes, you got a receipt? He wasn't to us yet. I'm like, yeah, ah, go ahead. I'm like, you don't want to see it? If you're pulling it out, you've got one. He said, right now, he said, if you didn't have a receipt, you'd be running. I said, oh. He said, so I know, I know who's guilty and who's not, because he said, you got no receipt. He said, you're not pulling one out. I said, oh. We walked to the store, and Amy said, keep that receipt for the next door. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We didn't do anything like that. But she did joke about it. She's like, that's incredible. Just pull out your receipt. Oh, Jesus Christ is our receipt and glory. Is that not good news? He's paid our debt in full. We're forgiven for our sin. So that we stand before the Father. He sees the work of Jesus instead of us. And he lets us in because we can hold up the receipt of Christ. And it says paid in full. Paid in full. That's what God has done in Christ. He's paid our debt in full, and he is our receipt. 
Well, there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. None. I don't know what your sin is in life. It's forgivable. Is that not good news? But Dwayne, you don't know how much pornography I've looked at. It's forgivable. You don't know how much sex outside of marriage I've had. It's forgivable. You don't know how bitter I've been. It's forgivable. You don't know it's forgivable. Is that not good news? It's forgivable because of what Jesus has done. It's forgivable. He loves you that much. It's forgivable for every sin. Well, there's curiosity in the resurrection. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So they stayed the week, right? probably lots of discipleship going on. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts uh, to Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked to them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So what did they do all week? They met with people and they talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. You've now received God's grace Here's what it means. You've received God's grace. Here's how you live. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So the crowd is gigantic. Many have gathered. Some because they want to hear about this miracle worker, Jesus, and thinks he can fix whatever is ailing them. Some because they want him to be their genie in a bottle. Right? That's what lots of people around believe. Right? Jesus is your genie in the bottle. I mean, I, I know Christians through COVID who've become really disillusioned, and part of it was because their relationship wasn't with a Savior, wasn't with the Lord. They had a relationship with a, I'll go to you when I got a problem so you can fix it kind of guy. Our, our problem isn't our financial mismanagement in life, although God does care about that stuff. Our problem isn't even our disease that we're facing and struggling with. Although God cares about that too. Our problem is our sin. Our problem is our sin. And before he is a great miracle worker, and he is, he is the Savior who's come to save from sin. Is that not great news? That's what he's come to do. That's not to say I can't cry out to him about these other things. But he's not... Some genie in the bobble, but poof, I call and he shows up. Poof, I call and he shows up. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe who holds everything together by his might and will. And he is supremely the Savior. That is who he is. So they urged them through the week to continue in the grace of God as they taught. Tim Keller says this. If Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue uh, on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether he rose from the dead. You see, that's, that's the issue with Jesus. It's not about whether or not he can fix my immediate problem. It's whether or not he rose to life again. That is the issue of Jesus. When we're talking with friends and family, when we're engaged in conversation with others, we need to get to the resurrection. It may not be immediate, but through conversation, the resurrection is critical. It's, it's the resurrection of Jesus on which our hope hangs. It's his resurrection. So now a huge crowd has gathered. They've all come to hear. But the Jews aren't happy in any way. Verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, they began to contradict what Paul 
was saying they heaped abuse on him. And Paul and Barnabas answered boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and you do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We will now turn to the Gentiles. This is what the Lord had commanded us. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. The Jews see the large crowds and instead of being, wow, these men have something to say, they're jealous. They're upset. You know, people get that way. Christians get that way. God's at work in someone's life and some Christian who's been around a while is like, wow, you know, the pastor has no time for me because he's spending time with all these new believers that are coming to faith in Christ. Or, wow, like all these people are now involved in leadership positions in our church or helping us out. I don't even know who they are. Like all the time I hear this from Christians, right? Silly things when I'm in churches. You know, people will come to me and they'll say, well, I'm really upset with the pastor. And they'll tell me why. And they say, well, you know, he's spending time with a bunch of people who've come to faith in Christ recently. I'm like, you're upset about that. And they're like, that doesn't sound good, doesn't like, not at all. Maybe you should join him in discipling them. Maybe you should walk alongside of him and what he's doing there. Instead of being upset about something that is so ungodly to be upset about. You see, Paul wants them to believe in the resurrection. But instead they heap abuse on Paul and on Barnabas. Instead they come at him in anger. You see, when you believe the resurrection, it changes what you believe about our existence. It changes what you believe about our purpose and it changes what you believe about our destiny. About our existence, because all of a sudden you realize that God's the creator. That he's made you. About your purpose, because all of a sudden you realize that you're now alive for him. And about your destiny, because you realize that the grave is not the end. Is that not good news? The grave doesn't have the final say. That love and wonder and beauty will last for all of eternity as we enjoy God forever in glory. But when they don't want this, they're jealous and they start to heap abuse on him. And we shouldn't be surprised that this will be the reaction of some. It shouldn't throw you off guard that some will heap abuse on you. That they persecute you as you share your faith. Doesn't mean it won't grieve you. When it's your mom or your dad. When it's your brother or family member. Doesn't mean it won't grieve you when it's your best friend. Or your boss at work and you lose your job over it. Doesn't mean it won't grieve you when it's someone that you care for, that you're longing, will come to faith in Christ, your children. But it does mean it shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't surprise you. And so Paul says, if you're going to reject this, then we'll move on to the Gentiles. And he does. Because he quotes from Isaiah 49.6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. He says it's part of what we're commanded to do. We're the Gentiles. I don't know if any of us this morning is Jewish. I don't know anyone in our congregation that is, but if you're visiting us this morning and you're Jewish, you're, you're part of the Abrahamic promise of the Old Testament. We're grafted in. We're grafted in. Well, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Is that not good news? God loves to save. 
He delights in saving. And those whose names were written in the book of life from eternity past, he saved. They believed he saved. One's rejected, one's believed. And notice what they did. They honored the word of the Lord. They heard the word of the Lord proclaimed and they honored it. Saved to eternal life. This is good news. Because the resurrection isn't only real. It's not only certain, but it's personal. Aren't you glad God has saved you? We talked about this last week extensively as we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit through the first part of Acts 13 and we looked at his role in our lives. But aren't you thankful the Spirit of God is in you? That's how personal God is. God is so personal that he cared about you. That he orchestrated the events of your life to introduce you to himself so he could save you. Is that not good news? I mean, as I hear testimony after testimony after testimony of people who come into our our classes for discovering James North, what do I hear? I either hear of people who were raised in Christian homes and in their raising of Christian homes, how their parents were faithful in teaching and declaring the gospel, and at some point they accepted the teaching that they heard from their parents. Or I hear these other testimonies of people who grew up in unsaved homes and in growing up in unsaved homes, how God orchestrated the various circumstances of their life to introduce himself to them. I mean, this morning, even as I look at it, I see a couple of young men in our congregation who grew up in Buddhist homes. You know, you know there's four of them now who've grown up in Buddhist homes in our congregation who've given their life to Christ over the last few years. God does that. Not raised in Christian homes, and God has orchestrated the events and the circumstances of, of their lives in such a way that he saved them, that he's gripped their hearts, that he's shown them grace. Because the resurrection isn't simply real and certain, it's also personal. God saves you. God loves you. God's concerned for you. That is great news, isn't it? That he actually loves you. And he begins to recreate us as he's recreating all of creation. The resurrection is God's starting point of the recreation of everything. N.T. Wright says this, the resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It is the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Christ Jesus and you are now being invited to belong to it. He is our hope. I mean, Jesus in his resurrected body, this is our hope. The fact that we get to enjoy all of glory with God forever. The fact that we will be in resurrected bodies one day. That I won't be battling sciatica. That sometimes I'll just be sitting and have immense pain run through my body. And get up and stretch. And weird times, right? Anytime. It happens a couple of times a day and I'll just be in excruciating pain. It'll be gone. People that are battling cancer or heart disease, it'll be gone. Disease will be vanquished. Death will be vanquished. We'll never face temptation again. I can't even imagine what it'll be like to be in a place where temptation will never come my way ever again, ever again. And God has done that because he loves you and he will be its centerpiece and we will worship him forever and ever and ever. Amen. We will just enjoy him for all of eternity because every sin 
has been forgiven. Well, even in the midst of persecution, note verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. God's word is unstoppable. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook, that's Paul and Barnabas, the dust off their feet with a warning to them. And they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Jason, you guys can come up. The word of the Lord spread. Persecution doesn't stop God from moving. That doesn't mean it's easy. That doesn't mean it's simple. Persecution is terrible. It's an awful thing for anyone to go through. And if you're declaring God's word faithfully, don't be surprised that you face persecution. We live in a culture that is trying at every extent it can to eliminate God of the equation. In fact, I want to be so careful as to say this because I don't think this is supposed to be totally public yet, but there's a, there, there's a new study that's been done um, in the secular world that's asking for people that are involved in certain places um, in terms of spirituality that no longer should we be welcoming anyone who comes from the Christian faith into these circles to talk about Christianity or to talk about faith, that we should be welcoming anyone but them. This, this is coming from a high level. I mean, I've seen this position. This is craziness. It shouldn't surprise us that there's going to be persecution. They killed Jesus. They killed all the apostles except for John who suffered a death on an island in isolation. And note what happened. They were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? God's Spirit was in them. God's Spirit was their clear evidence that they hadn't lost their minds. God's Spirit was the clear evidence that he was walking with them. And so they had joy. They had joy knowing that the confidence they had in the resurrection was real. That the confidence they had, the hope they had was certain. They had confidence, joy in knowing that God had personally saved them. And they knew like Paul, who says this later on in the book of Philippians, that to live is Christ and die is gain, that they can take whatever they want from me, that they can't take my Savior. Is that not good news? They can take my very life, but they can't take my salvation. I have a receipt. His name is Jesus. And when I stand before the Father in judgment, he's going to see his Son and let me in. Because my sin has been forgiven. Because he is alive. We're going to transition to a time where we celebrate the Lord's table. We celebrate a wafer of bread and juice that reminds us of the body and blood of Christ. The body of Christ broken for us. That Jesus incarnated himself. He came here and lived among us. That he was the promised one through the line of David. And juice that reminds us that his blood was broken for us. You don't need to be a member of James North to celebrate communion with us today. But you do need to be someone that God has saved. And if you're sitting here today and you know that God has saved you, we invite you to take this cup and to celebrate his body and blood. Today, if you're not saved, I'm going to be sitting right up here at the front. 
And there's others of us in the room. Pastor Paul's over here at the back. Pastor Marcio's over here. There's others of us. Probably Derek's not very accessible right now. Um, come on up. But if you want to chat with one of us about what it means to be saved, we'd love to share you the hope we have in Christ. And if you're sitting here today and you know that there's unrepentant sin between you and God, the Bible says that we're to examine ourselves when it comes to the table. I would encourage you to take a few moments and examine yourself. And as you take those few moments and examine yourself, that you say, is there unrepentant sin? Is there sin I need to repent of before I celebrate Jesus? And the good news is whatever sin you bring before him today, whatever you come before him with, he is able to forgive. Is that not great news? Because he's that God. Because he conquered sin and Satan and death. The Bible also says it's a division between you and other believers. But as far as you are able, that you are to reconcile before you take this table. So I encourage you this morning in those three ways to examine yourself. But if you come here as one knowing that God has saved you, celebrating that Christ's body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you, as our elders come forward to hand these elements out, I invite you to take these and to celebrate that Jesus is alive. That death couldn't hold him, that the Father raised him that he is alive now and forevermore. Your sin is forgiven, and he is your receipt into glory. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, God, for your incredible work in the person of Jesus, and we're thankful, Jesus, for your amazing love for us. We thank you, Jesus, that not only did you die for us, but three days later, you were raised to life again, and today we celebrate your resurrection Today we're going to hold two elements, a wafer that reminds us that your body was broken, that you incarnated yourself, that you went through suffering and pain, and, and juice that reminds us that your blood was shed, and it was shed for us, and we celebrate that you are our receipt into glory. We're marked paid in full because of you. We celebrate this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite the elders of the room to come forward and to take the elements and pass them. We're going to encourage you. The elders aren't going to be walking through the whole room. So once you have the elements, if you could be passing them to the people around you, that would be wonderful. And during this song, at some point, as you so feel led by the Lord, take a moment and celebrate his body broken for you, his blood shed for you. Jesus is Savior, risen to life.